Welcome everybody to Neurotech Pub. Today we have from Prime Movers Lab, Amy Cruz, who is a general partner there. And she's actually joining me to help introduce the episode. Amy, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. So in this episode, we're talking about sleep. This is like your wheelhouse. Yeah, this has been an area that I have been interested in uh, since my time at DARPA as a program manager. I ran the Preventing Sleep Deprivation program there. So to say I've been obsessed with sleep for a decade or more is accurate. Our guests today are uh, Luis DeLecha, professor at Stanford. And I believe that you know Luis, right, Amy? Yeah, actually, I met Luis originally back in the DARPA days. So uh, I recently reconnected with him. Oh, perfect. And uh, Ram Guramorthy, who is the CTO at Stim Science. Stim Science is actually developing a product that is supposed to aid with sleep. It's a wearable that passes electricity into the brain and activates sleep centers, kind of modulates sleep. Quite interesting. He talks a little bit about it in the episode. In the time since we've recorded this podcast, I noticed that Ram was actually featured in Fast Company talking about their sleep device. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to see uh, coverage of of sleep and, and neurotech in the popular press. We talk a little bit about the science of sleep, but also I guess it's worth saying that sleep has started to become an interest uh, in the startup world too. You have things like the Aura Ring, other kind of wearables tracking sleep. Stim Science is now offering a product that can help you sleep by stimulating your brain. Have you have you had a chance to look at this at all, Amy? I have actually. Um, I got really interested. Of course, you know have been interested in sleep for a long time. I'm actually quite a poor sleeper myself. So have been working on sleep hacking for quite some time from the VC perspective, got really interested in this last year, as you say, you know, just started to see a bunch of uh, companies, uh, techniques, approaches uh, come to the fore. And so uh, have, have definitely been looking at it. Sleep is eating up. Did you see anything that you thought was particularly interesting? Yeah. So I think uh, there's an interesting, uh, you know, sort of dichotomy that's happening. I think there are some things that are consumer facing, um, like some of the bands that you uh, referenced, whether they're, you know, uh, something you wear on your uh, wrist, something you wear on your finger, something you wear on your head, something that goes in the mattress, right? Those are all sort of consumer facing uh, devices. And then, and then I think there's a renewed interest in clinical sleep and insomnia, shift work disorder, uh, some of the things that are that are there and and you know I've uh, I've really taken a little bit more of an interest on the clinical side it, you know initially because uh, we typically don't do uh, direct to consumer investments so that's not been a focus area for us but also I really really like the um, applicability of doing something in the clinical space and then potentially sort of branching out from there. What was your favorite part of the conversation that we had? Sleep is fascinating, right people are, are really intrigued by sleep because it, you know, essentially we're unconscious, right? We don't have any control over it. And so I do think that the notion that, you know, sleep has different stages, it has these stages are, you know, kind of associated with different potential outcomes in the brain and that you can actually like modulate the stages of sleep with electricity or optogenetics or ultrasound or whatever that, you know, the, the notion of actually kind of like changing sleep, not just recording it, right. But actually kind of perturbing it or perturbing those signals in some way, I think is, is a lot of fun. And I think, I think we had a lot of fun with that. Amy, one thing that we've talked about in the past is just how much momentum the neurotech field is getting right now. And and it must be really interesting for you kind of starting off in DARPA then being here in venture during this like period of in, 
intensity, honestly, and in, in investment and kind of uh, advancements. I'm, I'm curious, like from your perspective, what do you see happening right now? Yeah. So the, the neurotech industry is, it's, it's finally like becoming the, the industry that I hoped it would, you know, back, back when we, you know, started making all these investments and um, whether it's, you know, what's happening in brain computer interfaces uh, the work that we're even seeing with, um, you know, peripheral nerve stimulation and vagal nerve stimulation. And, you know, frankly, what, what we're talking about today in sleep, I, I actually think that um, sleep, sleep applications are probably going to be one of the breakout uses for neurotechnology, not, you know, five years from now, not 10 years from now, but, you know, kind of imminently. And so really excited to have folks, you know, kind of closely track that space as well as all the other things that, that we're working on, but, but excited to, uh, excited to see where this lands. Actually, after we recorded our producer, Ali actually sent me this paper, uh, from Sydney Cash, who's been on our show before, and uh, works at Mass General Hospital and does a lot of interoperative recordings. And uh, they actually have looked at sleep data in patients with tetraplegia who have a, a brain gate implant. And so, it, yeah, it seems it's, it's actually quite interesting. So like there's a convergence of BCI and sleep where you have these patients with Utah rays that have been doing motor tasks and then they go to sleep. And then you see just like in, in other forms of motor learning, there's a replay during slow wave sleep. Yeah. So um, yeah. We'll, we'll link that paper in the, in the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the evidence around, you know, consolidation of memories during sleep and sleep as that kind of like replay rehearsal, and then again, stimulating or something to, to sort of enhance that there were DARPA efforts in that as well after I left, but uh, the RAM replay program, uh, you know, highlighted some of that, that work as well. So yeah, I mean, I mean, sleep, sleep is doing a lot for the brain which I think is uh, one of the reasons why we should all prioritize it. Well, okay. Leading into this, we're actually going to have um, one of our interns, Zoe, recorded a uh, explainer on sleep since we just kind of jumped straight into the uh, into the meat of it and started talking about like course level 300, kind of a, a brief talk about like the different phases of sleep. Amy, if people want to learn more about Prime Movers Lab, um, what's the best way to like follow you or follow them on, on the socials? On the socials. Absolutely. Um, So first of all, uh, primeoverslab.com is our website. There you can find a list of our portfolio companies, a little bit about our philosophy of investing, uh, some of our thought papers that are quite detailed in in some of the areas that we've uh, dug into. Um, And then uh, on Medium, we are uh, prolific bloggers. So really recommend you follow us on Medium. Uh, I myself have a couple of uh, blogs on obviously neurotechnology and sleep and neurostimulation that could be of interest to this audience that would be great to share. So uh, you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter. <laughs> if anyone's interested in learning more about Neurotech Pub, where our handle is at Neurotech Pub, and you can also subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can check out paradromics.com slash podcasts for video show notes and references. Thanks everybody for joining us. And before we kick off this episode, one of our interns, Zoe, has actually prepared a short introduction to sleep. This episode of Neurotech Pub deals with an essential topic to all of our lives, sleep. Sleep can be broken down into four stages, three stages of non-rapid eye movement or non-REM sleep, 
and one stage of rapid eye movement or REM sleep. These four stages together form one sleep cycle, which lasts approximately 90 minutes. Human beings ideally need about four to six of these cycles per night, adding up to about seven to eight hours of sleep. Now let's break down each of these stages and how they individually contribute to our overall health and well-being. The first three stages of sleep are considered non-REM sleep and are often referred to as N1, N2, and N3, respectively. Non-REM sleep is characterized by the relaxation and restoration of the mind and body. The first stage of non-REM sleep, N1, is often referred to as light sleep because it occurs as the body is transitioning from being awake into a state of sleep. This stage typically lasts from 5 to 10 minutes, during which the eyes begin to close, the muscles begin to relax, and melatonin begins to release. The second stage of non-REM sleep, or N2, is the longest stage in the sleep cycle, typically ranging from 10 to 25 minutes at the beginning of the night and increasing with each subsequent sleep cycle, making up nearly half of your total sleep time. This stage is characterized by a further slowing down of the body, lowering of the body temperature and heart rate, and a decreased awareness of your environment. This stage brings you deeper into sleep. The final stage of non-REM sleep is N3. N3 is the deepest and most restorative stage of sleep. It is longest towards the beginning of the night, lasting 20 to 40 minutes, and becomes shorter as the night goes on. During this stage, the brain is relatively inactive, and there is increased blood flow to the body, aiding in muscle growth and repair, as well as strengthening of the immune system. This is where the body does most of its healing. N3 also plays a large role in helping us meet our fitness goals. Being woken up during this stage can often result in disorientation and grogginess, since it is the furthest state from wakefulness. It is also the stage where sleepwalking is most seen. Following non-REM sleep, the body transitions into REM sleep, during which the mind lights up with activity. REM sleep is characterized by rapid eye movement, near paralysis of the muscles referred to as atonia, increased brain activity, and most of all, vivid dreaming. This stage is essential to cognitive function, creativity, emotional well-being, and formation and consolidation of memory. It is also most prominent towards the end of the night. Now, why is this important? Our sleep architecture, or the amount of time we spend in each stage of sleep, dictates our everyday function. Not enough REM sleep, for example, can cause declines in cognitive ability and creativity, increased fatigue, and higher rates of anxiety and depression. Less time spent in N3 may cause harm to the immune system and an increased risk for dementia and chronic diseases like cancer. Later in the podcast, Matt gives us insight about the consequences of not getting enough sleep on exam performance. Let's say you lose two hours of sleep studying the night before an exam, or in Matt's case, playing video games. You may not think it was that big of a deal. But in reality, it is towards the end of our sleep when more time is spent in REM sleep, the stage where the most cognitive benefits are found. As a result, even though you only lost two hours of sleep, you have lost much more than that in cognitive function, 
which is especially detrimental on the day of an exam. This is just one of the situations where understanding sleep can help place us in the driver's seat of our own lives. Now, let's jump in and hear from our guests, Ram Gurumurthy, Amy Cruz, and Luis De Lecha. Okay. Oh, what do you have? Something cork finished. Very Today. nice. I have the uh, Southern Tier Pumpkin. Excellent. My husband's going to be like, where'd the pumpkin go? And I'll be like, I had a podcast pub recording. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just start uh, by doing intros. Maybe, uh, Amy, can you start? Can you kick things off? Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, name, affiliation. Amy Cruz. I'm a general partner at Prime Movers Lab, and my background is neuroscience by training. Ram, do you want to go next? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I am Ram Gurumurthy. I'm the founder and CTO of uh, STEM Science, and uh, we are a company that focuses on using stimulation to improve sleep. I got my PhD uh, from Berkeley long back, and uh, I'm like a river that's meandered around. I'm a technologist. Anything, any technology doesn't matter. I keep meandering around. And my latest passion for the last 15 years have been neuroscience. Yeah, uh, my name is Luis de Lose. I'm a professor of psychiatry at Stanford, and I've been uh, studying sleep circuits for the last 30 years. Okay, well, maybe we can get started with our sleep stories. Amy, do you want to kick it off? Do you have a story about sleep, about oversleeping or undersleeping? Yeah. So so the first thing that came to mind was in a previous role, I was a chief technology officer of a global defense company, and we had a big office in Australia. Uh, and the Australians offered to kind of take me out for the night. <clears throat> and I had learned a few things about Australians, but not not everything yet. We were in Melbourne. We went to some dance club. The dance club didn't even open until 11 p.m. My flight, by the way, was the next morning uh, back home, you know, 14 hour flight back to L.A. or whatever. And, you know, we're dancing 80s night, you know, whatever, whatever. Here we go. And I look at my watch and it's like 2.30 in the morning and my flight's at like, I don't know, let's say my flight's at 8.30. And I'm like, I gotta go or I'm gonna miss my flight. So I race back to my hotel room, I pack, I sleep for, I don't know, let's just say I sleep for three hours or something like that. I set every alarm I have, I wake up, I make it to the airport, I'm fine, I get on the, good, everything's good. One year later, my colleague does almost exactly the same trip. And I told him, I said, whatever you do, don't miss your flight. Well, he got taken out to a much more interesting place than I did with a bunch of rugby players. <laughs> and let's just say he missed his flight by oversleeping. So I I slept, barely made the flight. He overslept, missed the flight. Same town, same hard drinking Australians. So just be careful when you're Australia with Australians. That's good. Flight. I mean, uh, I started way back with GE corporate already. And the interesting thing is, I used to find like any major initiatives, be it a Jack Welch initiative or a, a firefight at a business for a large contract, they will reach out to uh, corporate R&D. It almost used to be like every three to four months, there'll be one call like that. And it never is during the day. Right? So <laughs> it's, it's always, it's around, by the time I'll be, I'll be winding up to go do my Kung Fu class around seven o'clock. And that's when the call will come in. 
and they'll be like, we really are stuck in this. So can you please take a look at this? And then we'll rally up a couple of people and then it becomes an all-nighter, right? So <laughs> it it used to be, it never happened during the day. So that's something. <laughs> so that's why like, I mean, I, I, I used to think, okay, firefight has to be only in the nights. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. Luis, you're Spanish. Like there has to be some, like you stayed up too late. Sorry. Like, right. Well, well, <laughs> that, that's sort of the default. So what, <laughs> exactly. We have to normalize too late. Yeah. Yeah. Too but late, baseline is like, he stayed it's, up too late. So. Yeah. It's, it's sort of a lame anecdote. Actually. I, I, I remember not, not to mention. So I was invited to this, uh, to teach this course in, uh, in Spain a couple of years ago. And of course I, I, I'm, I, you know, now I'm used to the, uh, sort of the Western American uh, schedule. And uh, I was worried that I was, you know, I was going to land in this um, small town at uh, 9 p.m. And uh, I was going to, I was going to have, you know, to order uh, room service. And uh, of course it happened, you know, it so happened that uh, there was a festival in that uh, town uh, when I landed and, uh, you know, the dinner started at 11 p.m. So uh, there were, that was not a problem. And then of course the uh, party, there was another party that started, uh, at midnight and then we ended up uh you know going to you know going to bed at uh, you know 4 a.m or so so that that was you know that was a typical but that was a typical really that's a typical spanish <laughs> schedule so nothing no, not much of an anecdote it's just um, that's uh, that's how it works there so right and then if you showed up for class the next morning and you were like a little bit late it, it that oh, was not no, a, big, yeah. yeah, no big, no big deal. Everyone, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, good. Not the German style, right, Matt? No, not no, the, very like... different. So actually, yeah, there was this uh, in, in that course. There was um, I don't remember her name. Uh, someone from Harvard, um, and she she was you know flying the same flight with me, and uh, and she was she she couldn't believe her eyes. I mean, what what is going on here? I mean, starting at you know dinner at uh, at eleven, and. Uh, and uh, when there are fireworks at midnight, and what, what are they thinking? You know, anyway, it's just uh, just the cultural 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 differences. How about you, Matt? Well, I remember this is going to. Of course, everyone probably already knows at this point I'm a nerd, but this will just cement that narrative. Um, I'm remembering. I really liked my biochemistry class in college. Gordon Rule was the teacher, and and I remember. I was like not super diligent with homework and things, but I, I like really knew this stuff. So I could always make it up on the big tests. I was kind of cocky, I guess. One night I was playing a video game called Knights of the Old Republic, or it was Knights of the Old Republic 2. It was some Star Wars role-playing game where you run around with a lightsaber and, and, and fight people. I got to about midnight and I was like, you know what? If I go to sleep now, I'm just going to be playing this game all week. But if I, you know, if I push it, if I just... <laughs> beat the game tonight, you know, like I just get it over with, I'm done, you know, then that seems like the, actually the responsible thing to do, because then I can channel all of my like energy the rest of the week into my schoolwork. So I said, all right, I just got to do it. It's the only responsible thing to do. So I stayed up to like morning and I crashed hard. And then my alarm at like seven 30 to go to my biochemistry, like midterm <laughs> woke me up. Oh no. So I <laughs> went there. I, I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep during the test. In the test? I lost like an hour. I lost oh, like an hour from that test. Brilliant. I think I still got a B or something like that though. It wasn't it wasn't a terrible performance, but it was like it was pretty unnerving to fall asleep and wake up and have lost an wow. hour from your test taking time. But here you are. Yeah, I still I still made it through. So just to kick things off, big question, why do we sleep? It would seem from an evolutionary standpoint 
that being defenseless and semi-unconscious for long periods of time at night would be undesirable. And yet we see that it's selected for pretty strongly across a large number of different animals. And so it must be doing something. Yeah, that's, of course, a million-dollar question. But the uh, prevalent thought in the field is that there has to be a really a fundamental uh, property that uh, uh, is served by sleep. And uh, there's recent... Uh, uh, I think very attractive hypothesis. In addition to the lymphatic uh, clearance, which is uh, which is quite attractive, but uh, it has its uh, you know question marks. Uh, another hypothesis is that DNA repair is really at the core uh, of sleep. And why? Uh, well, DNA repair, of course, is essential, you know, to ke- to keep the uh, cellular homeostasis. Uh, and why? Why would you need to sleep? Why would you need to stop or or reduce or change? the um, uh, overall neural activity to allow the DNA repair. And uh, there's a metaphor that I think it's, it's quite appropriate for this. And, you know, you want, uh, uh, you fix the, the, uh, the potholes uh, usually during the night when there's no traffic. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, you actually make a, a, a big mess. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and that, that would be equivalent uh, to what is going on That's... with uh, DNA repair. You need uh, essentially an offline uh, in order to uh, uh, mode, in order to uh, for DNA repair to be efficient and uh, not mess up with the uh, normal um, you know, processing of information that occurs. Uh. That's actually pretty fascinating to me because it wouldn't have been obvious to me on its face that neural activity would be taxing on DNA and, and a lot of transcription associated with neural activity. Like I could imagine well, you know, the sodium potassium ATPase is more active. I could imagine calcium signaling or local dendritic protein synthesis, like all of those things being related to either activity or uh, plasticity. But I wouldn't have thought, I wouldn't have immediately thought that it would be taxing on the DNA machinery. Is it, is it known why? No. And that's, of course, uh, again, that's still a hypothesis. There needs, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, science that needs to uh, improve in that, in that sense. But uh, what's clear is that uh, uh, neural activity uh, does cause uh, DNA damage over time. And uh, mm. at the circuit level, it's also interesting because the, uh, you know, the GABAergic cells, which are quote unquote, uh, more active uh, during sleep, they, they are actually uh, being repaired uh, during the day. So it's, uh, there seems to be a really a, an inverse relationship between DNA activity and uh, DNA damage. And uh, that fits a hypothesis that DNA repair is essential for. It's one of the essential features of, of sleep. That's but there needs to be more, more than that, of course. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, what we see, all the mechanisms that we see that happen during sleep now in evolution probably are, are very different from what, uh, uh, from what uh, the origin, why, why sleep, you know, evolved in other species. So I think it's, it's essentially, uh, you know, an unanswered question. Is there a complexity threshold at which animals sleep or don't sleep? Or is there some, if, if we like trained a machine learning classifier to sort the sleepers and the non-sleepers, what would it, what would its classification criteria be? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, uh, sh- I don't think there's a clear um, answer to that either. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, Jerry Siegel has been trying to extract features of uh, species that uh, sleep more versus less and so forth. And uh, of course, the um, ecosystem, the ecological niche is uh, one of the uh, determinants of how much a species sleep and what kind of you know rhythms they, do, they, they have. Uh, and an exa- a very good example is the, uh, one of these bats that sleep 22 hours a day and they only are awake when, they're, when their food is available. And that is, of course, an extreme and probably an extreme adaptation as well. So uh, 
you know, some people argue, well, the default mode is sleep, and we only uh, we only need to be awake for a certain amount of of time. And I think that's an extreme because you really need to feed and you need to reproduce. And uh, indeed, if you uh, can fulfill those uh, functions in in a couple of hours a day, the rest <laughs> one could um, one could uh, sleep, right? I, and, uh, I had some friends in college that lived like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We all know a few examples. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, Matt, I, on that. Thread. Thanks for bringing that up, Luis. You know, uh, back in the day when I was at DARPA as a program manager, we had a program called Preventing Sleep Deprivation. It actually started before I got there and I, and I inherited it. It started out as a basic science research program. One of the things that was in the program was actually looking at like migratory birds and like fur seals and dolphins. And, you know, there's there is some really interesting variation across the animal kingdom on how animals sleep, when they sleep, why they sleep. The fur seals, for example, had totally different behavior when they were on land versus when they were in the water. They mm-hmm. actually shifted their uh, their behavior and their sleep cycles. We, you know, dolphins you've heard can put one half of their brain to sleep while the other keeps swimming, right? That's obviously an evolutionary adaptation. One of the reasons is because that little clock I was talking about is migrated off the ventricle of the brain, which is sort of the where the cerebral spinal fluid and all the communication signaling is. And so the, the brain, the hemispheres, as well as the lack of uh, deeper connected structure like human brains have, um, allows the, the, you know, the dolphin to be able to put half of its brain to sleep, you know, while the other half uh, still functions. And so I think there are some really interesting, you know, that was the question, like, are there really interesting lessons to be learned from the animal kingdom, right, about about sleep, sleep regulation, um, and, and those types of things. Um, I think it's only appropriate that we bring in Travel to Mars and Elon Musk, and how convenient would it be um, if we had the ability to put, you know, humans in, if not stasis or hibernation, some sort of suspended sleep state. Um, so, yeah, so you know, just kind of wanted to throw point, that I mean, out there, you know. So Elon should Elon should really consider making a serious play in the neurospace. I bet he'd be pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, he might be interested. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think neuroscience is, you know, slightly cooler than space, but I'm open to both. Right. Well, I'll take a shot one perspective, right? Uh, the interesting thing is, you see, I a lot of times analogize our brains to a, a computer processor and drive, right? Hard drive. It's one together. It's a processor and a drive together. And of course, you have all the peripherals, the sensory systems attached back into it, like our USB drives and the uh, and the uh, microphones and the speakers. The computer, if you leave it on running for a long time, uh, it starts hiccuping, right? So it starts having issues. The same thing, our brains and our body, if you don't have the reset periodically, where we do the defragmenting, where we do the uh, cleaning up uh, uh, garbage collection, pretty soon we will see that our wake time even, we will not be efficient, right? So from an evolutionary perspective, I think probably learned it the hard way saying I may be defenseless, but the rest of the time when I'm awake, I need to be able to defend myself, right? So if we don't get any sleep, so the normal guideline people talk about is if you sleep less than six hours, your morbidity rate or mortality rate actually goes up, right? So that's the general rule of thumb. Of course, by now I should be dead because I don't sleep more than four hours. But, <laughs> but having said that, it looks like 
it is the body's way of cleaning up and resetting and uh, uh, and uh, getting ourselves set for the next 18 hours. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Ram on the cleanup hypothesis, right? There's a lot of people who think that sleep is related to the what they call the glymphatic system and and actually the the waves within sleep itself are responsible for sort of cleaning out the brain. Um, I have asked this question myself to many sleep researchers. And one answer that often comes to the surface from um, very famous uh, sleep researcher, Giulio Tononi, is uh, Giulio would say, it's the price we pay for plasticity. Uh, if you think about the functions of sleep, uh, it's not only to, you know, sort of clean up the brain, which is obviously a, a huge function that will, would be conserved, um, but it's also the time in which our brains engage in memory consolidation, rewiring, um, and other activities, probably as evidenced by dreaming and, and other functions like that. So I think I think there are probably a couple reasons why we sleep, but they're both very important. Mm-hmm. Do we have a sense about how far down the phylogenetic or how far up the phylogenetic tree that goes? Like, I don't think worms sleep. Like, is there some level of complexity at which, you know, you know, just kind of like you don't have to defrag your like 1980s digital watch, but you do have to defrag there, your laptop? There is, Matt. You know, I wrote, I actually wrote a blog post on this earlier in the year on sleep. And I kind of did the research. I was like, wait, before I say like everything sleeps and it was, it was pretty far down. I mean, it wasn't into, you know, I mean, I think even, I think even like fruit flies have like interesting little mini sleeps. It's pretty conserved. I think that probably gives us a big clue to its importance. A a lot of the time when I hear about sleep, it's, it's about environmental cues or let's say like broad acting biological signals, melatonin is an example. But if we had free reign of the brain, if we had the ability to kind of flick the lights on and off in whatever neurons we wanted, is it clear what subpopulation of neurons or what structures you'd want to be able to just reach out and touch in order to let someone go to sleep immediately or wake up immediately? What, you know, what if I, I was staring at a screen all night and I, I ate too late and, uh, you know, I, I've been giving myself all the wrong signals, but I nonetheless... I know I have to get up early tomorrow morning. Do we know where some of the shortcuts are? How how mapped out are the pathways? Well, that's a little bit of what we've been studying for the last um, uh, 20 years. Um, yes, I mean, there are critical nodes uh, in, in the brain that determine when and how the brain wakes up. And there are there's a hierarchy to uh, to those structures. Uh, you know, hypothalamus connecting to the catecholamines, the catecholamines uh, to the cortex, and the cortex uh, feeding back to um, other, you know, structures, uh, sensing how much sleep has happened. And that, that's, of course, the overall scheme. But uh, there are many, many uh, nuances and many uh, sub-circuits and many iterations that make sleep and wakefulness uh, happen in, in a reliable and efficient way. Uh, I'm not sure if the question was if I were to design a new brain or, or what. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what. what, well, what yeah, let's let's imagine that. Um... Carl Dyseroth gave you uh, a very specific virus to transfect very specific neuronal subtype and a very small fiber optic that you could run, you know, within a light's distance of those neurons. Would it be clear what neurons that you'd want to be able to promote or suppress activity? Well, that experiment was done by us, uh, exactly as you said. Well, that's good. How how long ago? Uh, In 2007? Okay. 14 years ago. Uh, yeah, that was the first opto-experiment opto ever ever done in vivo. So um, 
And we targeted the, uh, our favorite neurons, the, the hypocretin neurons in the lateral hypothalamus, uh, which are the uh, modulator of modulators for sleep. Uh, they integrate all of this information that is required to uh, you know, prevent an unwanted sleep event. They're modulated by uh, you know, stress signals. Obviously, you don't want to go to sleep if, you're, if you have a predator behind you. Uh, they're modulated by uh, uh, metabolism, by circadian, circadian rhythms, blood pressure, you know, a whole bunch of uh, homeostatic signals that, uh, again, that prevent uh, falling, to, uh, falling asleep when you don't, when you can't fall asleep. And in terms of, uh, you know, the other side of the equation, uh, how would I uh, induce sleep? That is actually a more, more elaborate, uh, and it's a more elaborate answer because uh, uh, we thought, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago that there was uh, one or two or maybe three uh, uh, sleep centers that would induce sleep all over the brain when activated. And uh, we're learning now that that's, that's not the case. The uh, sleep centers are distributed. If you engage one partially, then you know sleep doesn't happen. You need to engage at least uh, you know uh, several of them in order to have a full blown sleep. Again, this is uh, uh, knowledge that is evolving uh, on, a, on a yearly basis. We're learning so much more. Uh, we know so much more now than we knew uh, only you know a few years ago. Are there certain pathologies like narcolepsy that can give us a hint about sleep mechanisms, or do you think that those are kind of like weird phenomena that don't mimic natural sleep. No, well, absolutely. I mean, you're giving me the, the, the same example. You know, the hypercretins neurons in the, in, the, uh, in the lateral hypothalamus are deficient in narcolepsy, and, uh, and that has been really the Rosetta Stone in the sleep field for the last 20 years. Um, you know, the fact that these neurons degenerate in, in narcolepsy has allowed us to uh, dissect the neural circuitry and the language of, uh, of sleep-to-wake transitions and how the brain decides when to uh, sleep and when to wake up. I see. But you say it's not as simple as, as just suppressing the activity of those neurons, it, that it's actually a, a larger network. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, there are, um, as, as in any complex uh, engineered system, you have alert signals that, you know, like a switch that uh, will turn on or off everything. Under normal uh, operation, you have, uh, you know, you have a division of labor and redundance uh, to make the, the, uh, the system robust. So that's uh, that's essentially what uh, what the brain is 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 about. Amy, if there's any group that has really really looked at sleep, I'm sure it's the Department of Defense. <laughs> I'm curious to have you know over the decades of work to try to you know keep soldiers awake for weeks at a time or let them sleep just before like a big fighter pilot run or something like that. Like even if not mechanistically understood, are there like important existence proofs or like, you know, empirical findings from that work? Oh, well, sure. You know, I, I think probably one of the things that that came out of some of the early work that had been done in the military populations in terms of sleep and sleep deprivation is just how bad sleep deprivation is. <laughs> Right. Just, you know, we used to quote the statistic that essentially, you know, being sleep deprived for 24 hours was the equivalent of sort of being intoxicated, you know, in terms of your reaction time and performance and, and everything else. So so that's been a really critical interest for the military. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, do you think that's because of the effect of what you described as sleep pressure? Or do you think that that's because the system starts falling apart already for lack of sleep? Like, is it for lack of sleep, for lack of restorative function, or is it simply because the body is, is just ramping up the signal to go to hell to sleep? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. We did some work originally 
on that same preventing sleep deprivation program where we tried to get like rested baseline, you know, cause one of the things, if you're going to do an experiment, you want to get like rested baseline, you know, and in, in individuals and we couldn't find like a Marine trainer that had rested baseline. <laughs> so, so I don't necessarily think that it's just like the, you know, body or system falling apart because there are certainly people who are able to, you know, perform at a pretty high level, um, in the instances of sleep deprivation, I think, I think it is really the struggle between attention systems and push and pull of, uh, the populations of, of neurons sort of battling it out in the brain. It's just not a coordinated system, right? The more sleep deprived you get, I think the less coordinated and, and functioning that system gets. I will tell you, by the way, that that when we did those experiments, we did experiments in, in military populations, there were a very few, but a few people who like, you could sleep deprive them for 24 hours and it was like nothing. You know what I mean? Like they were just like, shake it off, you know? And then there were people who like melted down, you know, and started seeing like visual illusions and other stuff. So I do, I mean, I do think there is some variability in individuals, but like, you know, when people say like, oh, I don't need that much sleep, like mostly that's just, you know, them telling themselves that it, it really doesn't relate to the brain. I would say the other piece is that one of the reasons we were so interested in, you know, short, I, I had a little effort I was sort of playing around with, we were calling it power nap, right? Is there ability to give someone a really short restorative bout of sleep prior to performance or prior to a mission or whatever, because, the problem with keeping people awake a really long time is that you generally have to give them a stimulant that could be as simple as caffeine, or that could be something else. And then they need to like come back down, right? So they end up in this terrible sort of energy slash brain cycle of being up and down. And, and so then, you know, the thought shifted towards rather than these like extended bouts of wakefulness, maybe you could do something that would give them short bouts of sleepfulness that would be restorative enough to sort of keep them, keep them going. And I do think the military is still, you know, interested and, and playing around with some of those concepts. That's been an interest for a long time. Just to add to a couple of the things that Amy was mentioning and uh, Luis was also talking about, if you think about our systems, the lot of the systems that are the subcortical, like the hypothalamus and all these systems are giving you signals and distractions to tell you, hey, why you don't want to go to sleep, right? Something else going on that you don't want to go to sleep. It could be from a sleep perspective, that's distractions, right? They are giving you a signal not to go to sleep, but there are ways, for example, when you typically think about, there are ways to just say, can I override that system? Can I override that system? It's like the Bose uh, noise cancellation system. So what does that say? As you are hearing something, there is a lot of other noise that's coming in. So for purely listening just to music, to that purpose and objective, the rest of the sounds that are coming in are noise. Same way, if you want to go to sleep, of course, you may not survive if you went to sleep at the wrong time. But uh, if you want to go to sleep, the rest of the systems that are telling you, hey, don't go to sleep right now could be suppressed by canceling them, right, at this level. So when you are trying to, so it's like the noise cancellation uh, headphones. It just says, hey, there are other sounds you need to know when you're listening to music. If you're driving, you don't want to completely cancel out everything around you. That's going to be important. But 
If you want to, you should be able to cancel that out, right? You can negate those. It's a reference signal that's being given to the sleep system. And it says, can I look at some of those references and say, I'll ignore them. I'll choose to ignore by canceling it right now. So that's another interesting perspective people have started thinking about now. That is something that isn't evolutionary going to be good if we just do it uh, without considering all the possibilities. Like, like Louis said, there are the reasons why these have developed to make sure that we don't fall asleep at the wrong times and we don't fall asleep when we need to be awake. But if we are right now in a nice, safe environment, we should be able to overwrite them. Right. So that's something I just want to add to that conversation. From a rhythms perspective, right? the brain rhythms perspective, when people start getting drowsy, there are these, uh, I would say, the end of a low frequency, that's the high end of the low frequency spectrum, which is like the alpha rhythms that start heightening. And that's sort of getting you into the drowsy state, right? Non-focused, unfocused, drowsy state. Then when you get into the light sleep, the slightly lower rhythms, which are the theta band activity. So the alpha band being 8 to 12, 8 to 13, different people see it differently. And then there is the 4 to 8. As you get into the slightly lower frequency range, you are actually falling asleep, right? You get into the light sleep mode. Then the theta rhythm starts enhancing and increasing, and it slowly starts shifting into the slower wave rhythms, which is the deep sleep rhythms, right? Which is the, it starts with the delta, which typically people think of in the range of uh, one to four hertz, and then even lower. As you get to more recuperative sleep, you even get lower to half a hertz. You start seeing these systems. This is first from a perspective of as you're looking at the sleep and how you are getting into sleep, you see these rhythms shifting. It's like a seesaw. So if you look at the if you look at the power of activity going on in these various frequency ranges in our body, if you were to plot it like uh, uh, like the equalizer in a sound system, it that seesaw keeps going up towards the left. That is the lower frequency start playing a bigger role and the higher frequencies start dying down as you get to more and more deep sleep. And then, of course, when you get into the REM rhythms, that is not a pure chatter. That actually are specific bands of activity in a specific shaped activity. That's, that's why it is not a lot of people, if you don't consider the morphology of the REM uh, activity in the brain, a lot of people find it hard to separate it from wake. But really, when you look at the morphology of the signal, not just as, hey, is there enough uh, power in the uh, slightly higher beta frequencies, et cetera, then you will not be able to separate out wake from REM. But actually, the interesting thing is, wake is not also, wake is the one that's the chatter, broad spectrum chatter, while REM actually is a very specific shaped activity in a band, right? So from a, Frequency perspective, you actually can see these variations go through. And of course, why do we need those frequencies? That's another interesting thing, right? So the, the reason being, I think, uh, some of them are related to suppression of external sensory activity, right? It's like the noise cancellation headsets. So some of the slightly higher frequency range, which is in the uh, mu to alpha range, are things that are getting your system geared to say, I'll start helping you 
cancel out any arousals or other sensory events that happening around you i'll start canceling them out and then you start going into the lower frequencies and some of them are related to actual memory consolidation some of them are related to actually the finer reparative reparative activities that are going in maybe this is maybe for Luis do we have an understanding of where where those signals are coming from and what the underlying circuits are is it is it naive of me to think that there are just two states of sleep you know or light wave light sleep slow wave sleep and rem sleep is it exist on a continuum is it relatively homogeneously distributed through the brain or do you find that there are particular areas controlling particular modes can, can you give me some insight into the mechanisms there or is it known yeah it's uh, starting to be known with high detail the big picture is that those oscillations are being driven by uh, thalamocortical uh, loops so uh, those neurons in the thalamus project to uh, broad areas of the, of the brain sleep states are not monolithic uh, they actually you know we learned uh, a few years ago that uh, you can have modules of cortical areas uh, undergoing sleep and other areas um, undergoing other brain states. So uh, there's some sort of dissociation of brain states at a given time. The prevailing concept is that those sleep modules travel from from to back in sort of chaotic patterns, uh, driven again by thalamic thalamic activity, also driven by um, uh, the activity of neuromodulators, uh, you know, the catecholamines, the subcortical structures, uh, and also driven by uh, interneurons, uh, the intrinsic network in in, in the cortex. Uh, the result of this combination is is what we see in the uh, in cortical waves. Uh, there are traveling waves. It's just a, it's just a beautiful uh, pattern to see. Uh, now that we have uh, you know the tools in with calcium and voltage uh, sensors uh, that are so powerful and uh, and. and- do you see the same spatial dynamics, the same kind of wave propagation in both slow wave sleep and REM sleep, or do you find? It's, uh, yeah, that's that's it's also a great question. Uh, so far, we've only been uh, uh, able to follow those waves with uh, some precision in slow wave. Uh, REM sleep has a very different pattern, and uh, we know it's just a disrupt. You know, we see that as a, a disruption of the of the slow wave pattern. Obviously, that's you know with. Uh, with more time and uh, technological advances, we'll be able to uh, figure that out in, in REM sleep as well. And are those patterns of activity, are those modes distinctly different from anesthesia? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very different. Uh, so uh, anesthesia is, uh, as you know, it's chemically induced and it's so much more uniform than, than natural sleep. It's just, you know, very, very different. Now, for a lot of engineering applications, a cortical target would be preferable than a deep target because it's more easy to access it's easier to target by non-invasive uh, stimulation. And if you have to cut open the brain, well, certainly the less deep you have to go, the better. I'm curious, do you see opportunities to modulate shallow targets? Do you think that you could control sleep with a purely kind of cortical interface? You know, people have tried that for a long time with without success because, uh, you know, that traveling wave is... Uh, is uh, quite elusive. It's, it's really a moving target. And if you try to modulate activity in one uh, small cortical area and the other will come up, it's just very difficult to harness. I favor manipulating uh, deep structures, even uh, as difficult as, as that as that is. I think it's mm-hmm. more uh, it's actually the, a, a better a better strategy. How close are we to being able to engineer a solution to to give us sleep after a hard night? Uh, I hope uh, not too far. 
we have different strategies with you know, ultrasound and uh, electrical stimulation and other uh, non-invasive technologies that uh, allow us to target um, deep structures and uh, with the precision that um, was really unthinkable only, only a few years ago. And uh, our knowledge of the circuitry is so much better now uh, that um, I think it's, uh, you know, we're, we're really at a time where that intervention is possible. So, okay. So for each of you, I'm going to ask you for a number. It's basically like how many months or how many years until forget cost. I, I have a lot of money. Uh, I pay myself a lot of money in paradromics. Huge amount. Wait a minute. <laughs> um, so cost is no this. issue. Um, I need it. I want something that doesn't involve opening the skin. I can put it over my head. And uh, at the end of a hard day, I can fall asleep in five minutes time, regardless of how I've been mistreating my body. How long do you think I'll have to wait before the, until that's a consumer product? A consumer product? Okay, fine. It could be available by <laughs> prescription too, but it's something that a person could get. It's a per, something a person could get. Not, not just like existing in like one Stanford lab, but something that like anyone with a difficulty could get. Amy, you want to you wanna go first? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I am optimistic in this space. I certainly see that happening within five years time. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was like, if we were using your unlimited budget, Matt, that apparently <laughs> you've got, you could probably shorten that to three years. Obviously, there's a little bit of clinical work and, you know, confirmatory science, I think that needs to be done. But I think we've got the piece parts in place to bring those to market, obviously, one needs investors to uh, help along the way. But, you know, again, Matt, with your unlimited checkbook, we can just, you know, press ahead. But I would say, I would say definitely within five years, you know, optimistic within within three. Rob, what do you think? Before I talk about that, I'm going to step back a little bit. and I'm going to say, I think just going to the deep structures is not the only solution for a different reason. Because if you think about it, when, like we talked about the swing example, if I go back to the swing example, A kid is swinging in the park. Another kid comes to a swing next to him, starts swinging. Initially, they start going asynchronously, but they start wanting to look at each other, smile at each other, chat with each other as they are swinging. The system actually adapts. The brain waves and the functional systems in the brain are indeed adaptive. So I agree, like Louis pointed out, a lot of the effort in trying to come at it from a cortical perspective has been to try to go exactly match it and shift it. That's wrong because the brain is adaptive. If you try to go and intervene and match it, you are going to shift. It's an elusive target. The moment you try to precisely locate it, you have added momentum to it and you don't know what its momentum is. The same idea. So you are going to shift the brain uh, uh, activity and the brain states. But if you were to say, I'm going to, if I just keep doing in a, in a bit, you actually are going to get tuned to that frequency, right? So I don't need to just say, I'll know exactly where you are. I'll keep chasing you. No, you do it at the right waves. You can actually get the system to adapt to it. You don't chase it, right? So having said that, <laughs> having said that, so that's that's something I definitely slightly differ in the view from what's going on right now in the industry. But having said that, uh, I would say that these kinds of uh, going at the deeper uh, structures. And no, no, no. I'm doing... asking. 
Uh, asking you how soon how soon you think it could happen. I'm not asking you how it would happen. I'm saying how soon do you think it'll be before I can put on a helmet and go to bed in five right. minutes? Our hypothesis are what we have. We have some good evidence in stem science to show with just stimulation at the cortical level, right? Uh, we are able to get people to have their onset latency, which is with both insomniacs and non-insomniacs. Right. So we think it's probably in the order of a couple of years. Uh, it's not much longer. We already are able to show that we can, with, uh, with uh, stimulation, electrical stimulation, we are able to get people to consistently reduce their onset latency and also increase the quality of sleep. Meaning, can you actually lessen the toss and turn? Can you reduce those transitions? Like Louis pointed out, these are things while you sleep it's not a beautiful nice rhythm of you going to n1 to n2 to n3 to rem and come back to n1 it's not that right you keep going jumping back and forth we are able to even reduce those transitions right the choppy transition the choppiness of your sleep so uh, we think uh, that it's possible in the next couple of years what is it like to wear you know like a transcranial stimulation hat I, I've never actually tried that. I, I'm a neurotech, mm-hmm. big neurotech advocate, but I've never actually put electricity into my brain mm-hmm. um, in that way. Can someone describe the subjective experience of doing that? Right. It's just like, let's say you put a band on, you need to have a good level of conductivity and contact, right? Because the uh, skin and a face is something which is important, whether you measure or you are stimulating, actuating, uh, you need to make sure that you're impedance at the skin level is good but let's say you have taken care of that we uh, we have seen there are different ways of doing that but once you have taken care of it it's i would say when you stimulate it electrically you could do it in different places like louis pointed out it starts from the frontal and goes backwards right so if you focus on the frontal stimulation then i would say there are a couple of things you will feel a little bit of a small tingle or warmth. So have you done those muscle stimulators, the tense machines, right? Yeah, they're, they're, miserable. they're, they're, oh, they're yeah. miserable. Exactly, exactly. So I was going to say, those are like, those are just like bang, 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 bang. They just sort of uh, try to force uh, and force twitch your muscles, right? Whereas the, the kinds of stimulation we are talking about is very minimal orders of magnitude below that in terms of the currents that you're talking about. It's less than a milliamp. That's the kind of orders of things. So those kinds of stimulation, when you put it on, it feels a little bit, some different sensations people usually feel are number one, small tingling, pulsing that you will feel that you get habituated to very quickly. Within a minute or two of you starting to stimulate, you do it for, let's say, 15 minutes. In the first couple of minutes, you start habituating to that. Then the other thing people feel is a little bit of warmth because there's something going on and it's also closing, right? You have an open forehead and suddenly something is put on it. So you feel a little bit of warmth. But the interesting thing, if you did it in the frontal as opposed to other parts of the brain, because you are so close to the dipole, the uh, optical dipole, you do, uh, some people also see a little bit of phosphenes, the peripheral visual flashing. So you do feel a little bit of that. But uh, that's that's the extent of what people describe their sensations because we have run like a couple of hundred people through these uh, uh, protocols and the sensations we record them stating it also. These are the kinds of sensations people typically And at that describe. level, 
at that level of current, what is some, and I'm sure there's some animal studies, like how much does that change the firing rates of, of cortical neurons? Like if you have one neuron that had like a firing probability of 0.2 during a one second interval, is the, is the probability of it firing like 0.22 or is it like 0.8? Just, just to give me like a mental model. I mean, is this like, like a butterfly landing on my daughter's shoulder or is this like a NFL linebacker trying to make her go upside down? <laughs> right. So uh, uh, hopefully there's uh, somewhere in the middle, <laughs> right? So because uh, uh, the interesting thing is what a lot of people, even with these, not even these kind of frequencies of stimulation, people talk about the immediate excitation or suppression of the neurons under the area you're stimulating. Uh, that I think is just, it's like, uh, it's basically, it's the mechanism to get to the end and the end really is to get you to swing properly, right? So when I'm pushing you initially, if I push you a little hard, you are actually, instead of getting him to, getting the kid to swing back and forth normally, you are actually jerking that kid, right? So that you have to fine tune at a personal level because each of us, it's a little different, right? So what level is actually a little jerky to us, it's a little fine tune needed. But it's not the jerk that really gets you sleeping. It's the gentle, gentle oscillations that you need that will make you sleep. So that's why I, I really think the suppression or excitation of the neuronal firing is an underlying phenomena, but that gets aggregated into the actual sleep uh, waves. That's that's really what we are going after. Luis, when you're looking at thalamocortical activity, I try, just for the audience to try to kind of keep a mental picture of this, how stable or precarious is the sleep-to-wake transition? Is it two states separated by a strong energy barrier, or is it a relatively subtle balance? I'm also I'm just trying to get a sense of this for when we talk about the, some of the technologies that would modulate these states. Is it the case that we walk around on the edge of sleep, you know, and we can easily be nudged one way or the other? Or is it the case that we have like really strong system dynamics that hold us in one state or the other and we have to come in with sledgehammer? It's more the second. And of course, in, in conditions like narcolepsy, it's more like the first. You know, it's like uh, your real, uh, narcoleptics uh, are walking on, 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 on really thin wire because there's nothing to secure and stabilize one state or the other. Under normal conditions, uh, 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 it's like you know, there's a safety system that that solidify that that stabilize um, one one state versus the other, uh, and that's why usually we are not you know we don't feel like we are gonna fall asleep uh, anytime you know uh, in the middle of the day. Uh, but narcoleptics do they do feel that all the time. That's uh, one of the experiences they they report. If there were one ask, you know, something that you would like to see happen in the field that you think would accelerate sleep therapies what's the what do you think is the missing piece of the puzzle that would allow everyone to move faster would it be you know for instance would it be a better a better stimulation technology would it be a specific experiment to help identify targets would it be bringing the cost of goods down to make this more widely available would it be amy putting more money into the field what do you think is like the the, the accelerant that you, you'd all like to see? All of the above. I mean, I think <laughs> you, you hit uh, you hit uh, you know all of the critical points. No, no, that's cheating. That's cheating. <laughs> you have to pick. What's your one thing? This genie only grants one wish. 
Yeah, technology, I think, is is the uh, is the big issue because uh, you know in animals we we are able to uh, switch back and forth relatively easily. You know, uh, we can make animals uh, fall asleep within five seconds, and uh, we can wake them up at will. You know, even if they're sleep deprived, we can we can do many many things with. Uh, with invasive technologies and, and genetically precise technologies. Do those same genetically precise technologies exist scientifically in humans? Is it really just a regulatory barrier? Well, yeah. I mean, there are many technical bar- barriers. Um, if one could uh, inject a virus into the human brain and uh, with a very precise uh, technology, you would still have, a, you know, you still have lots of issues. So, uh, I mean, that's, in, in monkeys, for instance, and in, in, in non-human primates, uh, uh, optogenetics is is not as successful as uh, I see. I see. So it's not like purely a societal or a regulatory barrier. The real technical issues moving from model yeah. system to model system. No, not unsurmountable, I think. I mean, if if one, uh, of course, if one had unlimited funding, and uh, yes, I think that that those could be solved. But um, uh, but still, I mean, they're not easy to <laughs> not easy to fix. And are you confident that the same mechanisms that waken that that put a mouse to sleep and wake it up are, are conserved across humans and yeah. primates? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the uh, hypothalamus is extremely conserved. In, it's a lizard's brain within our brain, and that is really what drives uh, uh, sleep-wake transitions and, and controls uh, uh, stability. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. What about you, Amy? You're wearing a different hat today. What do you think? What do Hopefully you think it's is- a sleep hat. Like, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> given the Luis thinks that the science underlying fundamental science is really strong. What do we need to, to make a practical therapy? Yeah, I would probably err on the side of maybe what I would call the systems integration technology side. And I think a lot of the general tools and techniques are available, but they need to be, you know, miniaturized or algorithmized or made into um, something that somebody could use uh, in a deployed slash mobile slash home setting. And so, you know, I agree with Luis that a lot of the fundamental sciences, I think, you know, nothing's ever perfect, but I think it's well described. And I think it's really about uh, the design of closed loop systems that are wearable and usable um, in those, you know, mobile environments. That would be my wish for the uh, sleep genie. And do you think that integration is a function of getting the right people at the table, or do you think it's it's cash yeah. limited? Or I mean, money always helps. You know, I have a I have a famous saying like, "There's things that money makes makes go faster, and there's things that money doesn't." Um, these things seem to me clearly in the category of money could make them go faster. So um, I would I would say. Uh, getting the right people on the team, um, you know, having the right capitalization to um, to go after the problems. We've certainly seen individuals that were well capitalized and highly capitalized take on some really important uh, systems engineering challenges and, you know, kind of nail them. So that would be my uh, my recommendation. Ron, what about you? What do you think is because you have a different you have a sort of contrarian hypothesis about stimulating sleep. And so perhaps you have a also different take on what is needed. I mean, it's, um, I would say there is a lot of interesting knowledge already about uh, the functional phenomenological model of sleep versus the uh, cellular level and the system, uh, uh, cellular level models of sleep. 
I would say, and also that the technologies, like Amy said, in terms of actual technology of the hardware or what is needed is out there, needs to be properly put together. So I would say that one of the key things is it's a data science problem. It's a data science problem of taking all this knowledge, taking those models and putting them together because it's actually all said and done. Some of these subsystems are actually inputs and references to our sleep. Some of these are actual actuators of sleep. Some of those subsystems are actual indicators or measurements or outputs of really where we are in the sleep. So it's a data science problem of putting them together in the right way and getting us more efficacious in shaping sleep. Because I keep coming back to that phrase. It's about shaping sleep. Like Louis pointed out, you to really say somebody's awake, get them into sleep is a tough proposition, right? It needs that sledgehammer kind of jerk. But if we get this data science model of combining that to say, is there a way to shape the sleep? That's what I come back to the swing analogy. Is there a way to actually shape you into the right oscillation that you will doze into a good, high quality sleep, right? So it's not against the other perspectives. It's just an additional perspective to say there is a lot of focus that needs to come into the data science and modeling aspect of bringing these various knowledge and models together to say, how can I shape sleep, right? And the actual mechanisms of what is that going to look like? Is it a helmet that's actually uh, uh, stimulating deep structures, deeper structures or surface level structures? Those, I think, are out there. We just have to pull the right pieces, but it's actually to pull this underlying actuation subsystem information, the uh, reference subsystem information and the output system. That becomes a data science focus. I think that's my wish at this point. Um, Amy, Luis, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really interesting for me. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks Before for inviting we, us. It was fantastic meeting all of you. Yeah, uh, thanks likewise. for having us, Matt. We thank really you. appreciate it. I, I love this. I get to selfishly choose topics that I want to learn about and then invite world experts. So. <laughs> <laughs>